On Friday, July 8th, AFM Radio and the team from Talking Space broadcast the final launch of the Space Shuttle Atlantis and the very last launch of a NASA shuttle. This is a rebroadcast of that live historic event. a live broadcast with a team of Talking Space on the Voice of Astronomy, Astronomy FM. One step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end, but they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. Yeah, the shuttle Atlantis has launched. I, frankly, when I woke up this morning, I didn't think it was going to happen. Looking at the uh, the weather out on the Cape, I'm looking at the replays right now. A gorgeous launch. The last shuttle launch, the 135th shuttle mission. And as we've done for the past couple of shuttle missions, one of my very favorite programs in the known universe, the crew from Talking Space, all together, all at Cape Kennedy. They're going to give us more background and detail on what's happening with this launch. We're going to carry live here on Astronomy.fm for as long as they have a program they're going to share with us. So we're going to go back to Cape Kennedy and uh, out to our crew from Talking Space. Good morning, guys. How are you doing? Great. Thank you for having us back here, Michael. Thank you for having us back on Astronomy FM. Welcome back to everybody who was here listening. In the background, actually, there is a video playing of the launch replays. It is set to a piece that was created by the person who wrote the soundtrack for Battlestar Galactica. So if you hear noise in the background, that's what it is, and it's a spectacular tribute to hear as well. So with us once again is myself, Sawyer Rosenstein, Gene McCulka, Gina Hurley, and Mark Ratterman from Talking Space. And also with us now we have a guest who uh, witnessed the launch. Can you introduce yourself to listeners, please? Sure. My name is Karen James. I'm at K.E. James on Twitter. And um, I'm the director of science for the HMS Beagle Project, which is raising money to rebuild the Beagle. And through that, we have a collaboration with NASA, in particular, astronaut Mike Barrett, who flew on STS-133 Space Shuttle Discovery a couple of months ago. So what do you think about this launch? Um, I'm still pretty emotional about it, actually. Um, it was just a few minutes ago, I think. <laughs> um, although time kind of tends to slow up and s- slow down and speed up a little in weird ways. Um, the whole thing is just, you know, it's powerful. It's powerful emotionally. It's powerful physically when the sound waves hit you. It's um, powerful because this is the last launch. It's all just overwhelming. And I'm still feeling that just coursing through my veins right now. Have you seen any other launches before? Yes, I I came out when Mike Barrett launched aboard STS-133 in February, uh, Discovery, and I was part of the the NASA tweet-up for that launch, and this time I'm part of the just regular media. (laughs) So uh, could you try even to compare the two launches to each other? 
Well, they were both daytime launches, so there's not too much different there. The weather was clearer for Discovery. Um, the, the biggest difference that's coming to me right now is that Discovery was scrubbed and scrubbed and scrubbed. We waited, I think, 115 days from the scheduled launch to the day it actually launched. We left Florida, we came back to Florida, we had so many disappointments over and over and over again. And so the build up to it was just enormous and it happened and I had a friend on board. So it was really powerful. This one just went off so smoothly. Everything went perfectly. The weather cleared, there were no problems, no delays. And it happened, I almost couldn't believe it was happening, and then suddenly it was over. I thought we might be coming back here to the press site a few days in a row, like we did with Discovery. Um, so those are my thoughts on kind of how the two are different. I, and uh, again, one of the big differences is when you know someone on board, as I did for the Discovery launch, that just changes everything. You rehearse and you rehearse. It really does. It really makes a difference. So we're glad that uh, you got to be here for this launch. Now, can you tell us a little bit more about the Beagle Project? Sure. Um, we are hoping to rebuild um, the ship that carried Charles Darwin around the world on a, a very important uh, voyage of, of discovery. And um, the whole legacy of the British maritime voyages of discovery is embedded in the shuttle program. And think about what the shuttles are called. Endeavor, Discovery, Atlantis. You know, these are the names of British ships of discovery. So um, our project has a lot to do, actually, with, with exploration and that's how the the astronaut Mike Barrett got found out about us through a, a little blurb in Science Magazine in 2007 and um, he is a keen sailor in, in addition to being an astronaut and got in touch with me and said out of the blue hey I, I, you probably get all kinds of crazy emails so consider this the latest I'm an astronaut I'm training to go into space in 2009 um, I'd like to collaborate with you and that was just a an eye-opening moment for me. I suddenly became a space fan again after all those years. And I went to Houston and I, he showed me around and we set out the, the points of our collaboration and so we've been going building up to that for um, a few years now and we're hoping to work together um, with astronauts aboard the International Space Station taking um, Earth photography to correlate with physical samples and biological samples taken by scientists aboard the New Beagle. It's a great program. Where can people go if they want to learn more about the program? That's www.thebeagleproject.com. Thank you so much for joining us, and we're glad you got to see the launch. Thanks a lot. I'm still buzzing from it. I think all of us are. A lot of people here at the press site are actually uh, very emotional after this launch. There are some people here who are uh, in tears, some who are close to tears. Probably most of us here are very close. Gina and myself are both pointing to I, ourselves. I'm and, still wiping the moisture coming from my eyes. So it's, it's just an emotional, and knowing it's the last one, it's it's overwhelming. I have always made a point of no matter what, where I am and what I'm doing to watch a space shuttle launch, and it's just um, to be here all the more sweeter and sadder. It's hard to believe that the program is winding down and coming to a close when she lands in 12 days, but... Um, Atlantis particularly is always, um, I don't know, she's my favorite orbiter. So to me, I'm glad she she was last. Yeah, everybody always seems to have a favorite orbiter, whatever the reason may be. And uh, Atlantis seems to be the favorite of a lot of people. And uh, now I can see why. It, it, just a spectacular launch there.
and uh, it's still amazing just to see people's reactions to it now. I've heard the comment made about the Apollo launches that it was said that uh, on Apollo 11 when when man first walked on the moon, the statement was made that that mankind walked on the moon. It wasn't just the United States, that the world kind of shared in that accomplishment. And I think that a lot of the shuttle's accomplishments and collaboration in building the ISS and the partners that we've had with uh, both science and also with the uh, actual hardware and uh, support around the world and, and tracking and telemetry and communications, that I think it's still a shared experience. And, and that's a, a thrill in today's day to, to have that cooperation and to see how we can work together and do some really phenomenal things. Yeah, it, it, it really is spectacular. And the shuttle basically just brings everybody together. I mean, there are people here from all walks of life and every single one of them stood there, cheered, applauded, shouted. I tried to avoid it so I didn't hurt the listeners' ears uh, as the vehicle climbed on its way. And it was, it, it, <laughs> it is a spectacular thing. It's hard to find any of us speechless here. And uh, that's why we bring guests in to help us out so we're not so speechless here. So uh, let, let's see if we can uh, grab someone here who hopefully isn't too speechless, who is here from the NASA tweet-up and is also a local to Gene and I as well. So, uh, if you could introduce yourself to listeners, please. We'd love to hear who you are. Hi, Sawyer. I'm Tina. I'm at TinaCan25 on Twitter. And I just witnessed history. <laughs> yep. I am uh, very, very speechless right now. We all did just witness history. Most of us here are speechless, too, which for me is a, a hard thing to find. But So what were your thoughts on the launch, if you can find words? Absolutely. absolutely. I've been waiting my whole life to see something like this my entire life to see something like this. I mean, to see a shuttle launch. I, I've watched the shuttle since I was a little girl. So and this I, was your first launch. This was my first launch. This is my first time on the Space Coast. And uh, I've been blubbering ever since launch. So uh, were you expecting it to be like that? Like what shocked you the most? about seeing the launch for the first time compared to what you normally see on TV? Oh, the flash. The flash, the rumble. I can feel it in my bones. I've never felt anything like that before. You know, everybody's chest always seems to vibrate, and it's... My chest, my feet, my whole body. Like, I, I felt it in my bones, and I'll continue to feel that. I will never forget this feeling. It, it's such a spectacular event to see the shuttle, and, uh, you know, you've grown up with the shuttle, so what was it like being there for not just any mission, but the final shuttle flight and final launch? I'm honored. I'm honored. I feel absolutely lucky that, that I even got to be here. And we were glad you got to see it, too. And most of us here are also emotional, so we understand where you're coming from. And, uh, again, we thank you so much for joining us. And uh, go recover yourself. <laughs> thank you, Sawyer. You're welcome. So as you can hear, everybody here is touched by the launch, which uh, you just heard live on Astronomy FM, the launch of the space shuttle, the final space shuttle mission, Atlantis on STS-135, which is now in orbit. And we'll briefly re-go over what's going to happen on the mission. So flight day three is the docking day where they will meet up the International Space Station, which is unusual because of the smaller size crew. So that's something you normally don't see. And then after that, they will be working on attaching the, uh, the multi-purpose logistics module, the Raffaello, with supplies. And on the last day, they'll take that off as well. There will be one spacewalk, and that will be by the space station crew. And uh, on top of that, they're also bringing up a robotic refueling mission to the station, which will be interesting. 
So, uh, yeah, again, uh, a spectacular launch. And uh, we have uh, one more person here who's going to share their thoughts on the final launch of the Space Shuttle program and the STS-135 launch. So if you could please introduce yourself to the listeners. Hi, everybody. I'm Jeff Bergen. I uh, do almost rocket science, so I know many of you uh, here, at least the talking space crowd. So that's really cool. It's nice to finally meet you all. In fact, I've never met you as well, so it's a pleasure, by the way. I, I think it's still funny that you haven't all met each other until yesterday. So, Yeah, we've never met each other, the four of us, all together at the same time. So this is a first. But uh, let's head to you. What did you think of the launch? I mean, what was your reaction to that? You know, when you see a launch like that so close, and um, it wasn't my first one being this close, but the last one being there... Again, it you don't you really can't formulate words for a while. Um, it takes some time to think about it. Uh, you know, um, the shuttle was conceived before I was conceived, and uh, at the same time, you know, uh, it first flew when I was three years old. So um, it's pretty exciting to know that I grew up with this program. I grew up making Legos in the shape of it, uh, no matter what color they were. But uh, seeing this launch up close, feeling it. Uh, really experiencing it. Um, it was exciting at that moment. And then after everything is over, you, you feel that sadness, that bittersweetness come back over you, that real emotion come up. I mean, we all shed some tears, I think, here today. I know. It, it, as much as it's an event to celebrate at the same time, it's also an event to, uh, you know, to realize that it was the end. But in fact, it had a great legacy with you know, her program and NASA with the shuttle program. Well, that's it. And, you know, the good thing about it is is we, we look at it as a, an end. But I know being a teacher, you've you got to move on uh, at some point. And knowing that my students and uh, other students likewise around the, the, the world in the same age group I teach, middle school, uh, have the opportunity to be those future explorers, to go to the moons that they're talking about, uh, you know, such as Titan or even getting to Mars. So that's really exciting to know that uh, we can ramp up for that, hopefully. So how do you think now that uh, you've seen that? How do you think that uh, will affect you when you actually go back to your students and you talk about this? If I can actually keep it together still uh, months from now when we all get back from summer vacation, uh, I think just being able to share that with them, they love anything you can bring in. So when they can see it and they can know you were there and you were part of that, uh, that's a big deal to them. Um, I have a feeling we'll be hearing more about this on your podcast. Which, can you tell the listeners a little bit about your podcast that you do? Sure. Um, it's Almost Rocket Science. It's a STEM-themed podcast. Um, we try to inspire tomorrow's dreamers. We interview really awesome guests whenever we can um, who have really awesome jobs. I guess that's the only way to describe it. We, you know, we started out with uh, Danny Forster of Build It Bigger from the Science Channel. Uh, we just did Jeff Notkin, one of your favorite guests, I'm sure, too. Uh, he was just a, a blast to do that with. And, um, you know, we're we're small, we're beginning, we're humble, but uh, we're having fun doing it, and we, we look to ex- certainly expand more. So if people want to take a look at your uh, podcast, where could they go to check it out? You know, right now it's at almost or www.almostrocketscience.com, and uh, we have not only there, you can get it in the iTunes store, um, the podcast, and if you check out the YouTube channel, um, a lot of them we've tried to add some video clippets if we can, or our last one was a complete uh, video uh, shot as well. So that's cool. Thank you so much. We're glad you got to see the launch and enjoyed it, and uh, we'll keep an ear out for your podcast as well. Great, and thanks to uh, you know 
being on Talking Space. It was really cool, and getting to meet all of you is uh, a real honor. So We are glad to have you on as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. Again, you are listening to live post-launch coverage of the Space Shuttle Atlantis, which was the STS-135 mission, which just launched at 11.29 a.m. Eastern Time, which is 15.29 UTC. And uh, that just occurred here with the team of Talking Space on Astronomy FM. And with us now, we have two very special guests who uh, actually work here on some of the systems at NASA. So let's, uh, from Johnson, and let's take a look and uh, let's get a listen to what they have to say. So uh, we'll give them a second. We'll get them set up and uh, we'll find out about our guests who we have here. All right. So if you would like to introduce yourselves to the listeners. Sure. My name is Heather Paul, and I'm a mechanical engineer from the NASA Johnson Space Center. Mary Jennings, I'm also a mechanical engineer on, at NASA Johnson Space Center with spacesuits. So the two of you are working on the uh, future extravehicular units, the extravehicular mobility units, or the spacesuits that are that's going correct. in the future, right? Mm-hmm. So what is important about the spacesuit that's needed for the future missions that are going on? What's so different about it compared to like a shuttle spacesuit? That's a great question. The current extravehicular mobility unit or spacesuit that they're going to use on STS-135 and all of the prior missions for EVAs, that suit was specifically designed for microgravity use only. So it's really not a surface suit. So its mobility is... Its mobility is uh, very effective in microgravity, but if you were to try to wear that suit on the surface of the moon or Mars or someplace else, you'd probably be a little bit challenged. And so a lot of what we're doing in the future generation suit development is looking at more mobility, increased mobility, but keeping the suit lighter weight. And then Mallory and I specifically work on the life support designs, making sure that we're providing very good oxygen, cooling water, battery power, thermal conditioning, everything you need to survive an EVA no matter where you're going. So we'll take it we learned a lot about those systems from the Apollo missions and what was, you know, what will you be taking back from the Apollo missions and what didn't totally work and you realize that you need to redesign. So the great thing is that we were able to talk to the Apollo astronauts, um, watch the video footage, look at the commentary, and find out what really worked and what um, we can definitely improve upon. Um, the, the mobility, um, the joints, especially in the lower body, the hips, the knees, the ankles, um, all of that can be improved. And so we're looking at the Apollo footage, talking to those astronauts that are still with us, and then um, making improvements from there. So... Uh... Obviously, you have to design these for multiple destinations, whether it be the moon, Mars, or an asteroid, which all have different, uh, which all have different gravity effects on them. So, how do you take that into account? Well, the great thing about spacesuit design is we're very, very adaptable to our environment, and a lot of that is a testament to all of the lessons learned over the over the various projects and programs that we've developed spacesuits for. And so, really, the gravity environment um, plays a role, but variations in gravity we can really account for through our mobility agents and also somewhat with our life support systems but the difference between microgravity and a gravity surface that's where you're going to see the most variation in design so when it comes to the actual uh suit itself and the life support system about how long do you need to take it into account for for the astronaut to be able to survive with it so right now our current evas are between six and eight hours long um, we can go a little bit longer if we need to, and we're looking at, for future planetary um, operations, whether we want to do 
four-hour missions and then recharge or four hours and take a lunch break, um, those kind of options and have the flexibility. And we're trying to build a spacesuit that has that flexibility in its design and it's in, in its consumables so that we can do have flexible durations. So uh, with the design of the suit, about how long do we expect it before that astronauts will be able to try it out and take it with them on missions? Well, we're actually testing on the ground right now. We've been doing that for several years, and we have several spacesuit prototypes in work. In fact, we're testing back in Houston, um, I believe, this week. And so um, as far as testing goes, it'll be pretty much under research and development for some time now, especially as we wait to find out what specific destination we're going to. We're kind of planning for a few different options. <laughs> but um, as far as when we're going to be using these in space, we'll have to wait and see. So how would you even test these on Earth? Because obviously they're designed for use in space. So how do you actually test them to figure out their usability in space? So there's different um, methods that we're used to test, um, whether it's the spacesuit itself, where we can take it um, underwater in the MBL, um, in our thermal vacuum chambers, or on the Vomit Comet, um, where we can do parabolas and test out in different um, gravity environments. And then for our life support system, we're able to, we're actually testing it right now in vacuum chambers and as a breadboard. And so right now it's huge and we're working on packaging it down. Um, and so that's a little easier to test on the ground. So I know one big issue that I've spoken to a couple of astronauts, one thing that they mentioned is dexterity of trying to use their fingers and their gloves to grab things. So how are you accounting for that? Because I know it's a mix of safety but usability at the same time. Absolutely. The gloves are one of the more complex aspe complex aspects of the spacesuit. I'd say life support is definitely right there within it. It's your really primary thing that you need. But the gloves, when they're specifically in microgravity EVAs, they're using their gloves their hands as their hands and their feet. So they're free floating. Everything that they're doing is with their hands, moving down and up and down the space station truss, you know, handling the hardware. And so the glove design is really, really critical. You want to have a very good flip, a very good glove fit because if you imagine that your hands are operating as your hands and your feet, then you're really wearing essentially a pair of shoes on your hands. And we all know what it's like to wear a bad pair of shoes. You end up getting blisters and it's just really uncomfortable. And for six to eight hours long, you don't want to put an astronaut in that situation. And so glove sizing is something that we've been working on in glove mobility for years. We've been continuously updating our designs and looking at ways to make it much more comfortable for the crew members. And so we'll continue to do that. But you're absolutely right. We have to trade off safety with comfort and safety with mobility. And safety always comes first. So if people want to find out more about the work that's going on with these future spacesuits, where can they go to learn about that? Yeah, um, go to the nasa.gov website um, and type in spacesuits and you'll find all kinds of stuff about our current suits um, and then some of our future suits that we're working on. Um, also, you can tune in to, um, we go out to the desert um, for a program called Desert Rats. Um, it'll be coming up later this fall and you can watch all of the suit suited operations, the rovers and the robots and all of that. Yep, so that'll be in late August and early September. So if you just look on your search engine for NASA Desert Rats, you'll find it. Thank you very much for joining us, and that was really great to hear about the future of spacesuits for when we go beyond low Earth orbit. So thank you. Great. Thank well, you. thank you so much. So once again, you are listening to post-launch coverage live on Astronomy FM with the team of Talking Space for STS-135, the final shuttle mission and the final flight of the space shuttle Atlantis. Again, you're here with the team of Talking Space, which is Sawyer Rosenstein, Gene McCulloch, Gina Hurley, and Mark Ratterman. And... Uh, We'll continue along now. We have another guest with us. If you could please introduce yourself. Uh, my name is Jack Dearlove. Uh, it's at Jack Dearlove. I'm one of the tweeters here. First time launch. 
<laughs> so it was your first time launch. So what was your reaction to finally seeing Atlantis go right off the pad like that? Well, there's, there's literally no words that could possibly describe what I've saw today. It's, it's so bright. It's so loud. You know, there's no way of actually putting it into context. Uh, it, it's really hard to describe it. it. I know it's not easy to do, but... Um... So as a first launch, what did you see that surprised you, you know, that you wouldn't expect from what you'd normally see on TV? Well, I'd seen the coverage of a couple of launches, and, you know, so I kind of knew almost what to expect, and I knew it'd be loud, and I knew it'd be very bright. But it was, it was kind of a case of just taking it all in, and we had this horrendous moment with the hold at five seconds, which I, I still don't know actually why we did that, that... You know, the, my heart was literally in my mouth at that point, you know, just hoping that it would actually, you know, take off on time or take off today. And uh, what country are you from? I'm um, from the UK, in case you haven't guessed. <laughs> yeah, we have a bunch of UK listeners with us as well. But uh, how do you think the space shuttle is viewed over in Europe and uh, their view of the end of the program as well? Oh, it's very interesting. I mean, my personal view is that I think... Um, been doing the tweet up and kind of talking to people about what the space shuttle does and what the international space station does there's very much a feeling of actually we're not necessarily quite sure um what we do and uh, you know what they both do in the uk because maybe we don't have a kind of a direct involvement with you know the human spaceflight program um i was at the the uk space conference on monday and um, talking about kind of which was created by the the newly created uk space agency uh, kind of talking about what uk space should do and Part of that is, you know, part of that is actually making sure the public actually knows how much of an involvement the UK industry has within space flights. The UK does a lot of uh, satellite, small satellite stuff. Um, it also does a lot of kind of quite, it's niche stuff. It's not, you know, sending a man on the moon, you know, that kind of stuff. But fingers crossed, uh, we've got a guy called Major Tim Peake, who is uh, an ESA astronaut. He's in the training with the uh, ESA astronaut corps at the moment. Hopefully at some point in the next 10 years, you know, we'll see him lifting off on a Soyuz going to the ISS. Great. So uh, glad you enjoyed the launch. Glad you got to see it and came all the way over. And thank you for joining us. <laughs> thank you. It's interesting as we talk about Atlantis and her crew, if uh, if somebody wants some interesting reading, and I mean that quite seriously, go to uh, any shuttle mission you want to pick. You know, just pick a number, go to Wikipedia, go to NASA, search there. But uh, look at the missions and, and grab a name on the crew. Take a look at somebody on the crew and then do a search for NASA bio, as in biography, but NASA bio and that astronaut's name. And I guarantee everyone that I have taken the time to read has just fascinated me with, with two things, both how extraordinary they are and how, especially meeting them face-to-face -face and talking with them, how much of a, a, a regular, regular guy and gal, man and woman that they are. So take a look into some of these, some of these people that are, that are out there in the, in the spotlight so often, and I think you'll find some interesting things. You'll probably find some people that are in some ways much like yourself, maybe in other ways much like people that you've known growing up and in school and in your, in your careers in, the, in a workplace. But uh, take a look. You'll find some really interesting things there on our NASA astronauts from around the world that we're so proud of. You, you know, 500-something people that actually made it into orbit, still they are just ordinary people, and to hear their stories, they tell them just like humans, and they're absolutely spectacular. Now, Gene, you've been giving up your microphone for the interviews. Thank you, by the way. No problem, Sawyer. We had some very, very 
good and tremendous people come wanting to come over to talk to us. I'm only too happy to do it. And we do have a couple more people coming over, one with a very interesting announcement. But, um, yeah, I didn't get to ask you, you've seen a couple of launches, right? I think you were even, you attempted to come down here for 134, right? Yeah, it didn't quite work out the way I wanted to, but, uh, and uh, I had to go ahead and, uh, uh, cover that one from home base, but, uh, this one was a little bit more emotional. I mean, I was here for 129, uh, 132, uh, but this one, this one was a little different uh, because, it, again, it was the last time uh, that uh, Launch Complex 39A was going to be uh, occupied for quite some time. We don't know exactly when a lot of these new vehicles are coming online. We've heard target dates of about uh, 2016 for uh, the Orion and the uh, Space Launch System, and that is, you know, we're still actually still pending that announcement. Uh, hopefully that will be within the next few weeks, but uh, nobody really knows exactly when. Uh, but this one, you know, you get a little misty-eyed because, again, this is the last one, not just because of the majesty of the vehicle leaving the pad, and it is just... Words fail me on what an incredible site that is. I can't even uh, put a, uh, a description on it. I mean, everybody kind of tries to describe it as a, every 4th of July kind of rolled up into one. But uh, it, it, that even is subpar. I mean, it's just – words fail me in plain English. And it, it's, it's sad to see this vehicle – uh, beyond her final mission, but uh, I know she'll go ahead, she'll carry it out well, and uh, she'll come back to us in one piece, and uh, then have a uh, a good home here at the Kennedy Space Center, over at the uh, Kennedy Space Center Visitor Center, and uh, we'll just see how uh, how that uh, exhibit trend comes out. I mean, it, the one interesting thing is that this one actually went on its first try, which is something that it seems like it doesn't usually happen, although the percentage of it is higher than most people think. But for it to actually go on the first try, I, I don't think you or I have ever seen a launch in person where it has on the first try, have you? Or? Oh, yeah. And all three of those, now all three of them have been Atlantis, Atlantis launches. Uh, STS-129 went off with, uh, without a glitch. STS-132 went off pretty much without a glitch. This one was a little bit of an ale-biter, uh, but... Uh, uh, as I, uh, people were kind of getting a little discouraged during the holds and all that, and I just said, remember what happened to Discovery on STS-133. Uh, as you know, that was a nail-biter right up to the very end. But, uh, uh, again, this one was just, just, just a tad bit more exciting. But uh, we did it, and uh, she's now off safely. For those that weren't there for it, it basically went to the... Uh, they had added a hold at T-minus five minutes to work on a range computer glitch. It had nothing to do with the vehicle. It was all about uh, a ground system. Yeah, I think a monitor had blown out or something like that, and they were just trying to figure out how to how to restore that particular monitor. Um, but, uh, you know, again, they got that one off, and uh, we got this one off. So we'll just uh, uh, be monitoring the mission uh, on, on the show and... Uh, and keeping everybody apprised of what's uh, going on on, on Atlantis's last uh, journey and the uh, space shuttle's last journey. See how great that it finally went on the first try, but, uh, you know, it, it, I'm still amazed that it went off, because I know a lot of people, like you were just saying, were, you know, nail-biting during the holds, because I don't think anybody, there were very few people, uh, there was one person who was with us who was very optimistic about it the past couple of days and turned out to be right. But uh, otherwise, most people were very discouraged about it actually uh, going out and launching on the first try because of the weather. And Sawyer, again, though, but I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and reiterate what uh, Mike Moses said uh, on, uh, on, two, on uh, I believe, Wednesday. 
uh, during the uh, uh, one of the countdown status briefings. He said that uh, again, he is tanked uh, or performed tanking at uh, you know seventy percent uh, weather unav- you know unavailable or or uh, not good for launch, and has gone that day. And today was that kind of scenario uh, where we had a, only a thirty percent chance of uh, of uh, weather permitting us to go, and here we are. So uh, Atlantis is uh, back in her natural habitat today, and we'll just see how uh, how everything goes. Uh, Mark, uh, I've got a uh, kind of from out in left field uh, point to throw in. Uh, a few weeks back, I believe it was last month on the 21st, June 21st, they had a Discovery Media Day, and I got to go on board Discovery. And I, I talked about it briefly earlier in our show. But uh, I actually got to go inside the crew cabin, the mid-deck, the flight deck. And uh, one of the things that happens following launch is they reconfigure the, uh, the vehicle for orbit. And one of those things has got to be, as I was surprised at how small it was. It really is a tight space, even the mid-deck, which has got a fair amount of room. But uh, on this flight, all four astronauts were up on the flight deck, so they didn't have the additional uh, the, the launch and entry seats as you as you would i guess uh, in place that they had to move about and uh, but they've got work to do to get everything ready for on orbit and that's one of the things that they're working with now and it's quite uh, quite interesting to actually see the size of the orbiter how tight everything is there were four of us in the uh, the i would guess you would call it the the back section of the cockpit and uh, everybody had to kind of crouch or kneel or or barely stand bent half over and it's a pretty tight space. And on orbit, they get a little bit of advantage from lack of gravity to give them a little extra room to move around. And I think it was uh, quite, a, quite a thrill to see it firsthand. And I hope that what I'm saying uh, adds to what everybody has seen with pictures and videos and such. Which on top of that, you also uh, got to sign the white room wall, which was uh, very interesting that most of the dignitaries get to do when they visit Discovery. But you didn't sign your name, did you? Uh, no, I signed TalkingSpaceOnline.com. Hoorah. And uh, one of the group of media that was that was on that particular well, uh, group, small group of five total that was uh, on board Discovery at that point, uh, he was taking a picture of this this so-called white room wall. It's an entryway to the orbiter. It's right around the crew hatch. And he was taking a picture, and I said, because there were so many signatures. There were signatures everywhere. And for me to find a place that I could write our big, long website name in, I had to, you know, get down by my, uh, down at foot level, nearly on the sidewall. And he was shooting a picture of, uh, of something that was pretty high up. And it was the crew patch and the crew signatures from STS-107. And it's, it's sad to think of that, and at the same time, Makes you feel closer to to some that have sacrificed in in the in the greatest way, but to to see history, to see a signature of the Prime Minister of of Great Britain, uh, it was it was quite a bit of fun. It had to be, and it's amazing that the two of them were at one point were serviced in the same orbiter processing facility with Columbia and Discovery and some of the other vehicles. So again, we you are listening to live coverage of. Post-launch from STS-135, the final launch of the space shuttle program, which went off a few minutes behind, but it went off safely and is in orbit at 11.29 a.m. Eastern Time, just 15.29 Universal Time. Again, you are listening to Talking Spaces team coverage, broadcast on Astronomy FM with Sawyer Rosenstein, Gene McCulka, Gina Herlihy, 
and Mark Ratterman and uh, a bunch of guests that we were getting as well. So we thankfully had a successful launch, minus the nail biter in the beginning. It went, and uh, it was a tremendous launch for the end. And uh, we haven't really talked about this on our show yet. What what does the end signify to you guys, the shuttle program? Because I know to a lot of Americans it's a bittersweet moment at the same time. But uh, to you guys personally, either Gene or Mark, whoever wants to take it, what do you think of the end of the shuttle? The space shuttle has been an, a, an icon for the past 30 years. I mean, there, as uh, Mike Lombach said the other day, uh, there are children around here, that there are, there are adults around here that grew up with, with the shuttle because of its long career. There's, they've never known anything else. Uh, it has been so ingrained, this, these vehicles have been so ingrained into our culture. So, indeed, it, it's kind of like losing an old friend. But by the same token, too, I, I, I had an opportunity to talk with uh, Bob Seek yesterday, and he kind of in- indicated to me that, yeah, indeed, it's, it's time to let these vehicles go. Uh, they have served the nation well, but uh, uh, you know, to everything, there's an end, and uh, it, it's time for these particular vehicles to go ahead and uh, uh, be retired and uh, go on to the next big thing, and uh, we'll just see what that next big thing is. Uh, the uh, multi-purpose crew vehicles waiting in the wings, uh, known as Orion. We have the announcement for the space launch system coming up. We have several commercial partners uh, wanting to go ahead and uh, participate in low Earth, o- low Earth orbit operations to go ahead and service the International Space Station. It may go ahead and spur off another, another industry, uh, a commercial space industry that we do not have. Who knows? It may even open up the door to space tourism. So, uh, again, this is, this is just the end of Chapter 1. This is not the end of the United States space program by any means. And uh, one of the things I, I try to go ahead and, and emphasize is this, this is not the end. So, um, again, my, those are my thoughts. Mark, what are yours? You know, it's interesting to think about the fact that uh, we're not the first ones to reach the end of something. I mean, many times over the years, if you think of aircraft, if you think of different classes and types of ships, cars, you know, just plain old automobiles, uh, there's always an end. There's the thrill of of something new. There's that point where you realize that the last, whatever it is, is the last one that you're going to see in that brand spanking new condition. And at one of the events in the last few months, I think it was STS-133. I was at a, or actually 134, not that it matters, but I was at a a payload briefing, and one of the NASA managers for payload for 134, Joe DeLai, was asked the question, is how he felt with the end of the shuttle program coming up, and his statement is one that, that I, 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 I mirror. He said, when one door closes, another door opens, and that's much of how, how I think of, of this whole time that we've been in for the past year and some, knowing that we were close to the end of the shuttle program, is it's the end of one thing, but it's the beginning of another. And I guess the, uh, the biggest thrill that I can look at and say, man, this is a great day is that the orbiters are going to go to some very special uh, uh, venues where they're going to be able to be seen and, and looked at closer than ever before by, by folks in many a place, the Smithsonian 
here at Kennedy Space Center, at the Science Center in Los Angeles. And people are going to be able to get close to these ships, and they'll be inspired. Here at the press site, we get inspired so often by what we see and what the people that we get to talk to. But that experience is about to go out on a much wider scale in a different way. And uh, to all of you who will get to see one of these orbiters coming up soon, go for it. Give yourself some time. Give time to to be it at the place where they where they set them up on display. And just take time to to look and to learn, and to look forward. Definitely. Now with us, we have another special interview who's also a part of a great organization. So if you could introduce yourself, please. Sure. Hello. My name is Ryan Cover. Wait, hang on. Oh. Hey, now my mic is live. <laughs> Hi there. I'm, my name is Ryan Kobrick. I'm a postdoc at MIT, and I'm the executive director of Yuri's Night. So have you seen launches before? This is my fifth launch, and each one is as exciting as the next. I'm a little bit breathless right now, so... Um, you know, what I have to say today, hopefully it's a coherent, but everyone's really excited here out in the, the Florida heat, and we just experienced um, something that's just, every single launch is one of a kind, so that was unbelievable. It really is. So you've seen five of them, so how is it knowing that uh, five is going to be the end, that there's no more than that for you, uh, for anybody to see in terms of shuttle? Well, um, that's the thing, is that each, each time you see a launch, it's you want to see more and more. I mean, one launch is awesome, and then you're like, oh, I want to come back and do this again, and then you do come back and do it again, and so now I don't know how I'm going to get my shuttle launching fixed, and um, the relevance of having humans on board of the launch is very important, and also because the shuttle is such a unique vehicle, it's not something you would typically see or ever see again, I guess, in any country, um, just because of the way it's set up, and with the, it's, and it's amazing how powerful and bright it is as well. Yeah, it, it really is spectacular when it just comes off the pad like that. Now, the one thing I really want to talk to you about is this the Yuri Night organization, which is really a great thing. If you can tell our listeners about it, sure. Uh, Yuri's Night is a worldwide space education outreach initiative where people celebrate around the world human spaceflight. Um, Yuri's Night is named after Yuri Gagarin, the first human in space, who launched on April twelfth, nineteen sixty-one, and then twenty years later, on the same cosmic date, on April twelfth. 1981, the first shuttle launch. So the uh, originators of Yuri's Night were like, hey, this is you know a really cool date that we can bring people together to celebrate uh, the past, um, our current program, and the future of human spaceflight. So um, events will range from backyard barbecues to groups as big as 10,000 people, like in Stuttgart, Germany. And um, this past year was the 50th anniversary of human spaceflight. So we had a lot of excitement and over 600 events in over 75 countries including on board the International Space Station. So how do these people actually get involved with events? Like, how would they create an event for your um, It's really simple. I mean, the what we try to provide as, like, our global executive team is ideas, um, resources for people to come to us, and they can just register their event. Um, and all they have to do is something, something as simple as a web form. And then we, we provide information for them on downloadable videos, a tribute from the ISS we've had. Um, maybe about seven out of the 11 of past years, we've had a video come down from the ISS and how they're celebrating. So this year, the, they did a dinner and a movie, and we actually weren't expecting a video from, the, from them. And they surprised us a few days before and said, hey, there's this video here at JSC. Um, we're trying to get it to you. And we're like, yes, yes, we really want to get that out to the public because um, it was recorded by the Expedition 27 crew. 
and in three different languages. So it really it was really a global video to bring people together for the 50th anniversary. How important is it to make it such a global event to get all these people from around the world together in separate places? It's well, I mean, that's the the most critical part is is being international and bringing people together um, for one celebration and having it on one day so people know how they can connect to each other around the world. Um, we broadcast online on Space Vidcast and get people to call in with their events and get video feeds and get people in the chat room there. Um, and then, of course, people putting up photos after the events and kind of sharing it with the world. And so the idea is that everyone has unique ideas. They have different ways of celebrating space um, and of reaching the public and educating them about space flight. And by connecting to each other and sharing, other you can kind of build off of those ideas. And um, the events are, are just going to keep growing. And we're going to get to get pe- more and more people involved and excited about space, which is really important for the future of space because it's going to be a lot more personal. People are going to be more involved. People, A lot more people are going to be going, too. So that's a key aspect of it. So when it comes to Yuri's Night, how can people find out about it and sign up? So for Yuri's Night, they can go to our website. It's just yurisnight.net. So Y-U-R-I-S-N-I-G-H-T dot net. Um, and you can get information there. Uh, we have our Twitter feed, which is just at Yuri's Night. We have our YouTube channel, which is Yuri's Night. We have, uh, you know, all the major sources of, uh, of new media and social media because that's really how we connect everyone. So it's really important. Um, and so we have a big announcement that we made this morning, and it hit the news feeds, I think, at 8 or 10 a.m. Eastern. And that's at Yuri's Night announced the second annual um, winner of the Spirit of Yuri's Night Award. And so the first year was awarded to Richard Garriott, a private um, astronaut. And this year we've awarded astronaut Ron Guerin on board the ISS, the International Space Station, right now, um, which is really exciting because uh, Ron is um, a huge component of promoting uh, sort of the overview effect of looking down from space and using that to help protect it and has started a blog as well called Fragile Oasis. And uh, we also got a video from Ron that he sent down that we have online today accepting the award. So it's, it's really exciting to have his involvement and um, his willingness. He, he came to us and said, hey, would it be okay if, um, if we wore Yuri's Night shirts on April 12th for the 50th anniversary and had our own Yuri's Night in orbit? And of course we're like, well, let us think about it. Yes. <laughs> so we, as fast as we could, we got the shirts out to them. Um, and the entire crew was wearing shirts for Yuri's Night. And then there's lots of photos afterwards because they just wear it as one of their T-shirts, um, which is really exciting. And in his video message, he actually mentions that one of the shirts is going to be sent back to Earth. So we're trying to think of big ideas on how we can share that maybe as a traveling exhibit. So um, lots of cool things. And we, we congratulate Ron, of course, on this achievement and for his inspiration of connecting people around the world. And that's, uh, I think, FragileOasis.org. Thank you so much for coming on and teaching us about Yuri's Night, and we'll all be sure to start our own parties. My pleasure, and I hope to see you guys out there, and you can apply for the exec, which closes in a few days. So come join us and come start your own events. Looking forward to it. Thank you. You know, as we think about uh, what's been going on today, I have to reflect back to STS-1, and I'll I'll repeat some of this probably as I've mentioned the story before, but my wife and I, who uh, just want to mention her, Mary Ratterman, my better half, has been a great help to us in getting ready for today and uh, helping us with uh, just the logistics of getting everything from the parking lot, which always seems to stretch further and further from our, our site here where we're broadcasting. But uh, she's done a lot. But she and I saw STS-1 launch in, in 1981. 
And one of the things that's going on now is the half a million to three-quarters million people that they estimated were going to be here for launch today are kind of stuck in gridlock because they've all seen the launch and they're all trying to get out at the same time. Well, we did the same thing, except we delayed it for about an hour because we had the foresight uh, not only to have a vehicle with some extra room, we had a pickup truck, but we had a camp stove and coolers and food and drinks and stuff. And we actually sat out there because STS-1 was a morning launch. We sat out there with our camp stove and we cooked bacon and eggs and had a nice breakfast alongside the Indian River. And uh, I guarantee not too many of those half a million or better people are having that experience right now. And uh, even with the thrill of the launch, there's still that aggravation of uh, getting out, getting home, getting on your way, getting breakfast that you may have missed, getting lunch that you wish uh, you had with you and things like that. So there's a little bit of the 1981 way back perspective that uh, I'm privileged to be able to look back on. All right, so we are back again here at the Kennedy Space Center press site for the post-launch coverage of Space Shuttle Atlantis on the final Space Shuttle flight. And with us here, we have another participant who was able to uh, to see the launch and another tweeter. So if you could introduce yourself as well, please. <laughs> Hi, my name is Heather Smith. I am um, at HeatherNot88. That is my hashtag on Twitter. And yes, I am one of the 150 awesome people from around the world that was chosen um, by NASA in order to be here. So, uh, have you seen any launches before? Uh, yeah, this is actually my fourth one. So, yeah, but this is my first one for Atlantis. So, it's pretty awesome. So, what did you think of the vehicle and her performance there? Absolutely flawless. Beautiful. Um, no bad things to say about it at all. I know we all got a little scared there just before launch as they had to hold and go around that. But uh, what was going through your mind at that point? Well, actually... Uh, I knew we'd be just fine because, I mean, the NASA engineers, they know what they're doing. They've, they've done this hundreds of times before. I mean, they've done it last 30 years, so they know exactly what they're doing. So and we would be fine. <laughs> Great. So uh, it's you got here to be for one of the last, the last shuttle tweet up and the last shuttle launch. So how was that significant to you? Well, first of all, I have to say uh, <laughs> this, just knowing while I was launching that, oh man, you are never going to see this again, ever. So I cannot wait until uh, my kids get here and get a chance to show them photos, show them videos, and tell them exactly who these astronauts were and uh, what they're doing in you know, 30-year history. It's a lot to, to discuss for them, but uh, I think it's pretty awesome. Right, because... Uh, it used to be back in the old days that it used to be the Buck Rogers the <laughs> astronaut was the model of what everybody wanted to be. The other ones be fireman, police officer, or an astronaut. Both right. of three. So right. uh, it's great to try and continue that along with the other generations. So of course, yeah. you think you'll be able to help do that with the images and the stuff that you got from today's launch, continuing the you know children's dreams of becoming astronauts. Exactly. Lots of outreach. Lots, lots of outreach. Actually, my day job—that's what I do. I work at the Museum of Science and History in Jacksonville, Florida, and uh, I am what they call a planetary educator. I have people come by, show them the stars, show them exactly what's going on, and then give them a little space flight history. So, uh, yeah, I absolutely love my job and I, I can't wait to, to show people in Jacksonville um, what we saw here today. I can't wait to see what you have for them as well. And <laughs> I have a feeling they'll be looking forward to that. So uh, thank you so much for joining us. Awesome. Thank you for having me on. <laughs> Anytime.
We're going to continue on here a little bit longer with our coverage of the post-launch of Space Shuttle Atlantis. We hopefully have a very special interview coming up, but we still have more very special interviews now. Uh, so if you want to pop those on and uh, you want to go ahead and introduce yourselves to uh, the listeners out there, who you are. Hi, I am Tay. Um, follow me on Twitter, and I'll try not to cry. <laughs> What's your Twitter tag? I am Tay. I capital I A M T A Y. So you are Tay. I am Tay. Okay. <laughs> it's good to meet you. Same. So have you been to a shuttle launch before? This is my fifth. Your fifth, wow. My fifth one. Yes. So ha- it had to be tough to see this as the last one. Well, I'll try to get through this interview without bawling my eyes out. <laughs> That's okay. You're not, you wouldn't be the first one today. Don't okay. Worry. <laughs> um, no, this is very special um, only because it, I, I still get very upset when I see that the Russians are still using a crash and burn. And we've got a fantastic machine that can fly at 17,500 miles an hour and turn around and land on a landing strip. And our astronauts can step off and walk on their own volition and communicate rather than being lifted out of the vehicle onto a chair where it looks like they're basically being treated for shock. I'm sorry, that's just my personal opinion. And um, uh, I'm just so proud of NASA for... uh, doing what they're doing in spite of what uh, has been thrown at them and against them. Um, I have faith in NASA. Um, I, I really am hoping and praying that the Orion will do and uh, Constellation will do something um, in the future. Um, I visited the Orion. I was thrilled that uh, I was told by an engineer there that if they have to do lower Earth orbit, that they can. They can modify the capsule to be able to do that and that gives me hope you know i mean if, if spacex bombs out and i hope it won't but you know if, if if the alternative presents itself we have something we have something and i i believe that nasa is going to step up to the plate i, I really believe that yeah so with the end and commercial crew vehicles in sight uh, it it's got to be tough to look back on the shuttle program and see what an amazing vehicle's been and see that it's over. So uh, the, the whole program has been spectacular. What's your opinion on you know the entire space shuttle program, the 30 years that we oh, had at this vehicle? Well, darling, I'm old enough to remember Alan Shepard. <laughs> so then how would you compare between... Uh, between the vehicles of the olden days and, uh, and I don't mean to well, I, well I'm 57 that's okay um, the, uh, the the shuttle was just so phenomenal I remember STS-1 we had the opportunity to see uh, Bob Griffin this morning and listen to him and we talked about the irony of the very first STS-1 uh, right on up to today and um, he even said that you know if given the opportunity he would hop back on you know if somebody decided they didn't want to go he'd hop in in a second but I remember when STS-1 took off and when it landed, I mean, you know, we'd seen rockets go up, and yes, that was spectacular. It was un- unusual to see an airplane on its, you know, nose up like that. But when that thing landed, oh my gosh, my heart pounded. Every pore opened up. My knees went weak. Said, oh my gosh, this is a miracle. That's and that's how I felt. And for a while, when we were launching them, like once a month, I thought, well, this is commonplace. I mean, within the next ten years, we'll be putting citizens on board, and you know, trucking winter vacations up there or something, you know? Um, but when all of a sudden Challenger and, and uh, Columbia took place, and then I'm, I was so saddened that uh, uh, President Bush opted to end the shuttle program, it it was it was almost a, a black flag that we just couldn't shake. And uh, um, I understand where they are coming from in terms of expense, in terms of technology becoming obsolete. 
Um, I've, I've even asked NASA, can't you come up with a, like a mini shuttle of some kind, you know, some kind of modification? Uh, but they said that there isn't um, a demand for multi-use, I mean, not multi-use, um, uh, recycled, I guess you'd call it, uh, vehicles. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm glad you got to see the launch. I hope I didn't over-talk. No, that was perfect. Thank you. Okay. Have a good day. Good luck. You too. Thank you. All right. So, again, you're listening to live coverage of uh, post-launch of Space Shuttle Atlantis here with the Talking Space and Astronomy FM. And uh, right now we have a very special guest who is uh, a veteran of two shuttle flights and will be going up to the International Space Station very shortly. Uh, so joining us now is Commander Chris Hadfield. So uh, thank you so much for coming and talking with us today. Uh, it's my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. What a great day to be at the Kennedy Space Center. It really is. It was a beautiful launch. And uh, you've flown twice on uh, the shuttle. and uh, Including Atlantis. In yeah. Yep. So how was it to see her go on the final flight? Uh, it was near miraculous today. Uh, everything was against us. Um, we had... Uh, huge programmatic troubles convincing ourselves that we could even launch this last shuttle without a rescue ship. We uh, had to get smart enough and brave enough after Columbia to launch again. We had to fight terrible weather. Uh, we had all sorts of political obstacles to overcome. Um, and just a few seconds before launch we had a, a tactical problem. And yet we worked through every one of those and launched and sent Atlantis to space. And to me that encapsulates the whole space program. We take something that is right on the edge of impossible and make it happen. It's, it's, uh, it's near miraculous. It truly is. And um, on one of your missions on uh, STS-100, you actually brought up a very important piece to the International Space Station, bringing up Canadarm2. So how is it now seeing Canadarm2 and work and all the amazing work that it's doing after bringing it up there? The real measure of a good tool is if it can uh, surpass its original design, if it can do things for you that you just never really thought it could. The, uh, the Canadarm that is on the shuttle that flew now 90 times has done that in spades over and over and over again. And then Canadarm 2 that, that came up on my second shuttle flight that I went outside on spacewalks to bolt together has done the same thing. It, uh, it has built the International Space Station piece by piece, incrementally, like a huge uh, Meccano set or a big Lego thing. And, um, and we are now operating the Canadarm from the ground a lot of the time. We've found a way to safely operate a huge, complex, seven-jointed uh, robot arm from the ground and do it safely. Uh, we've moved it around for spacewalks. We've, we can grab the whole space shuttle with that arm and move something that's 100,000 kilograms. It's, it's uh, been a great um, example of the type of thing that, uh, that smart, dedicated people can build and then another group of really operationally minded people can use to do things that are right on the edge of, uh, of impossible. Can you tell us a little bit about your upcoming mission on the ISS next year? Uh, I've been training for about uh, three years already, and there's another 17 months away. Um, we will uh, climb into the Soyuz rocket ship in Baikonur, Kazakhstan, uh, out on the steps of Kazakhstan. And uh, I'll be sitting in the left seat, which means I'm sort of like the pilot of the Soyuz. And uh, it'll take about the same length of time as the shuttle has, uh, about 10 minutes to get to orbit or a little less, and then about two days to get to the space station. And then we'll be on the space station for six months, uh, halfway around the sun, you know, from one side of the solar system to the other. And uh, 
running all those huge laboratories, uh, keeping the health of the station, space station up, using the cannon arm to grab the uh, resupply ships as they come up. And also, for the last three months there, I'll, I'll be the commander of the space station. So uh, the responsibility, however weightless it will be, will fall on my shoulders while I'm up there. Uh, the lives of the people and the, uh, the world's space station uh, will be under my command. So, so there's a lot of preparation, a huge amount of uh, technical uh, challenge to it but also a, a great personal satisfaction to be in a position to do this at this stage of my astronaut career and at this stage of my life. Are you looking forward to being up on the station and actually getting to work hand-in-hand uh, hand or Canadarm with Canadarm with uh, the device that you actually brought up on one of your previous missions? Uh, yeah, I've, I've worked uh, with the two arms. When I was on my last flight, it was, it was pretty interesting. We actually reached out and held something with Canadarm1 and then picked it with Canadarm2. So it was the first handoff in space. And while we were doing that, the main computers on the space station had all failed. And the station had lost complete control over its systems. And it was only the shuttle uh, using its primitive computers that kept the station pointed the right way. And we had to move the arm in the most primitive, basic fashion possible as we did the handoff. But, uh, but we accomplished it. We worked through that problem as well. So uh, using Canadarm2 on my next flight to to uh, grab satellites out of the out of space, out of the sky, to uh, hand things off to the other Canada arm, to the Dexter uh, two-handed arm that's up there. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm working an international program, but of course, I take great pride in the Canadian components of it, being being one of the Canadian components myself. Amanda, can you just give us any indication? How do you prepare for being off Earth for six months and away from everyone you know and love for such a long time? Um, the astronaut life is one of training and preparation. It's not one of space flight. Uh, I've been an astronaut for 19 years. I've been in space for 21 days. So your life is a life of training, and most of your training doesn't happen where your family lives. So I spend my life already away from home, uh, training, working in isolation, working in uh, Star City, Russia, in uh, Scuba, Japan, in Sevastopol, in Germany, all over the world. So, in fact, the six months on orbit is, is the icing on that cake. Um, you are doing what all the training was for. Your family can look up; they know where you are. <laughs> and we have uh, we have sort of like Skype on board. We can we can call our family pretty much any time, and uh, we can set up video conferences with them. I can email with them anytime, and that that's pretty much what it is like right now. So, so for me, uh, the the uh, the life is is all part and parcel, including the space flight. And I think people think, oh, six months in space. But that's a four-and-a-half-year commitment in order to get those six months in space. Very little of it where you sleep in your own bed every night. Um, so you have to choose that that's what you want to do. You have to set up a family that is willing to accept that as a, as a normal, healthy way for a family to exist through other ways of communicating. And we'll just extend that to when I'm in space. Thank you so much for joining us, and all the best of luck on your next mission. Uh, thank you. I'll take all the luck I can get. Thank you very much. <laughs> and luck we'll be is following great. your mission as well. And, uh, Thanks. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Bye-bye. Thank you. So that was uh, Commander Chris Hadfield from the Canadian Space Agency. We'll be going to the uh, International Space Station on the next one. Okay, I got to get Thank you. Uh, thank you. You're listening to live coverage of... Uh, Space Shuttle Atlantis' final launch, which occurred at uh, 11.29 a.m. Eastern Time, which was 
UTC, which was a little later than expected, but nonetheless, a beautiful launch, and uh, we're coming to an end here on our program. We're coming down the final stretch, and we have uh, another interview here, so uh, if you could please introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Mary Michael Sherrier. I'm the press manager for the Space Frontier Foundation and a big fan of Talking Space. Well, thank you for coming on. We're glad to have you. So, have you seen any launches before? No, this was actually my first. Uh, I got into the tweet up, at the just pure luck, and I couldn't believe it. So, I trekked out from Berkeley, California, and believe me, this is um, even more awe-inspiring than I could have imagined. So. How did it feel to be a part of the history as one of the 150 selected for this final time? Very exciting. I mean, I, I work in press a lot and kind of on the back end and to actually be involved in something this historic and get all of the wonderful opportunities the NASA tweet up gave us um, was just shocking. I mean, we heard that the board was green and that the weather was still at 30% direct from the weather controller before she went and announced it to CNN and all the other people. And so it was just shocking to be that close to the uh, reality of the situation. So how was it being on the other end of the uh, media aspect this time, of being the spectator rather than the organizer? It was definitely more relaxing. Um, I got to enjoy it more and... Um, hello, helicopter. Uh, I got to really enjoy it and um, and get a little bit deeper into the, the science of the mission and all the details and everything. Cause when you're on the back end, you're so busy with the little details of, Oh, did this guy meet that interviewer? And is this guy going over here that you kind of miss the, the exciting parts. And so this, I was actually on the water watching three miles away as the thing lit up and believe me, I couldn't hold back the tears. So how did NASA do in your opinion with this tweet up for you? Oh my God, they did amazing. This is beyond what I expected. I was thinking, okay, so we'll come, we'll get to see it very close, and that would have been enough for me. You know, a couple of bottles of water and I would have been happy, but here I'm talking to astronauts, I'm hearing about robotic refueling missions, and um, heck, they even gave us little M&Ms that had little space shuttles and the date on them. I mean, down to the very last detail, it was insane how how much they did for us and what was even more shocking to me was so many of the uh, NASA staff were saying to us thank you for being here thank you for popularizing what we're doing um, and we're all sitting there going why on earth are you thanking us we are just like beyond grateful to be three miles away or 30 miles away just being here is amazing so um, it was definitely humbling so who was your personal favorite person that you got to hear Ooh, hmm. I think I'd have to say uh, probably the astronauts are all a tie. <laughs> it's really hard to pick one, um, you know, because they all have such different viewpoints. You know, some of them, it's just all hilarity and comedy and self-deprecating attitude. But then some of them are really, you know, just glory filled. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like you feel like you're going to get sunburned being too close to them. So it was definitely hard to pick, but I think the astronauts were my favorite. Well, thank you so much for coming on and uh, yeah. glad you got to see it and uh, go Atlantis, right? Yeah, I hope uh, hopefully we'll get to see you guys and everybody else at the New Space Conference at the end of July, where we're going to talk about what is next in human spaceflight. And um, in the conference, we'll give people a good chance to tell us exactly what they want to see. And a couple of our team members, I believe, are already making plans for that. So Awesome. We'll be down there. Thank you, and thank you for continued support of Talking Space. 
All right. Thanks for uh, doing your show. We love it. Glad you love it. Glad you get to listen to it. And glad you got to be on it. Have a good day. So we are coming really close to the end of our program here. We're in the home stretch. So uh, I think we should go one last time for a little round robin around the table just so we can uh, get some final opinions here from everybody on the final flight. So uh, shall we go around the table on our thoughts on this mission? And uh, if so, who wants to, uh, who's the head of the table here? Who wants to start? This is Mission Control Houston, uh, the crew on well, board Atlantis. Well, I guess I'll make a comment and just say that, you know, the launch is um, the probably the most publicized portion of any event, of any mission, uh, but mission until let's not day. fail to remember or We're acknowledge those thousands of people at NASA, the um, all the contractors, all the NASA people, all so, the support staff, the, the, the team here at Kennedy Space Center, the team that processed Atlantis during her flow since her last flight at 1.32. I mean, the launch lasts eight and a half minutes, but to get Atlantis back up into space was 13 months, and um, there's thousands of people that need to take credit for that. And I think, you know, the astronauts certainly are the public face of the mission, but they stand in front of so many more people who also just need acknowledgement on launch day. So I just want to give a shout-out to all those that made Atlantis fly. Gene, your final thoughts? Just a huge thank you to anyone that has touched any four or any of these orbiter vehicles taking care of them all these years. Thank you to all those who, all those families who made the ultimate sacrifice and to those, those two crews we lost. Uh, you will be forever in our hearts. And just go Atlantis, come home safe, bring the program to a successful end. And uh, just a huge thank you to anyone that's ever touched those vehicles. Thank you so much. Mark, any final comments? You know, one of the questions that I've asked at some of the press conferences has been, uh, you know, one that the, the manager, the astronaut, the, uh, you know, the various upper level people that I've had a chance to talk to have, you know, could well have answered, uh, yes, we did a, a, a good job and we worked hard, but they do more than that. They always seem to turn back and reflect on the team, the team's commitment, their focus. And that's something we've heard in many of the press conferences where Mike Moses, Mike Lineback, and many of the others have spoken and said, we just want to keep our team on focus, do what we've done before, and launch, you know, STS-135. And boy, did they. Boy, did they. And I want to extend that same thanks to Sawyer, Gene, and Gina, because it's your focus, each, each of you and your abilities and expertise and your finesse in different ways that have brought us together today. So thank you and uh, good to be here as I think I've said before. You beat me to what I was going to say on that too. And the space-time continuum did not open. We're still here. Yeah, so again, uh, thanks to everybody here from Talking Space for making the trek out and uh, coming out and especially to Astronomy FM for allowing us to come on and we'll hope you'll listen to our normal shows. So we have some amazing interviews with some of the people behind the scenes some of the astronauts, and uh, in fact, Gina and I earlier today had a very interesting uh, interview with, uh, would you like to share with our guests who we got to talk to? Oh, one of my favorite people in the entire planet, Elmo on Sesame Street. So we'll actually have a video of that online as well as the audio in the next episode, so we'll hope you'll check us out if you haven't. Our website is TalkingSpaceOnline.com. 
Our Twitter account is at Talking Space. And you can also find us at Facebook.com slash Talking Space. So Atlantis is on our way. Okay, my mic's on. And uh, I would like to obviously thank everybody for, who worked on Atlantis for getting her off and getting her off safely. Uh, thank you to everybody at Astronomy FM, and we'll go around any other thank yous that you might have. So I'll give my thank yous as well to you, Jim McCulloch. Thank you, Sawyer, and thank you for all everybody that uh, decided to go ahead and make us part of your day and uh, keep uh, following Atlantis. Thank oh. you as well, Gina Hurley. Okay, Pleasure was all mine. Glad you got to be here. And also, thank you, a huge thank you for setting up the entire set here, the entire tent, everything. Mark Ratterman, Amen. thank you. Uh, you're welcome. And by the way, if anybody's wondering, there was space for some more satellite trucks. I looked at the yard out there this morning, and as busy as it looks, there were some empty spaces. So, hey, media, come on, get with it. Do it talking space style. <laughs> hey, they gave us some bad traffic here. And uh, thank you as well to Mary Ratterman, who helped us out with the setup as well, and to yeah. anybody else who supported Talking Space throughout our time so far and who helped get the word out about us and tuned us in. So yep. thank you so much for joining us. Atlantis is in orbit. You can follow that mission at www.nasa.gov shuttle. Remember, we're talking spaceonline.com. You can also find us on iTunes. And uh, thank you for listening. And I will sign off with the typical Talking Space sign-off, which is the first time here from the Kennedy Space Center. Have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are. And go Atlantis! And go Atlantis. This is Michael Forrester wrapping up this live broadcast of the launch of Atlantis. We'll now go back to our normally scheduled programming. We'll be going into Earth, Sky, and News. More news coming up on Atlantis at the end of the day today. Join us tonight on the Event Horizon, 9 o'clock, 9 states Eastern Time, 0100 hours Universal Time for that program. You are listening to The Voice of Astronomy, and what an exciting day it's been, too. Thanks for joining us right here on AFM Radio. Catch you guys later. Thanks. Adios. AFM.